Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. My name is Joseph, and today I spoke with Professor Anuj Shah. Professor Shah is an associate professor of behavioral science at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. His research uses psychology and behavioral science to examine social issues such as poverty, youth violence, and crime. In this episode, Professor Shah and I spoke about a lab experiment on social perceptions, in particular how when we learn a few details about a stranger, we seem to feel like they know and understand us too. We also talk about a field experiment he did with his team in the New York City housing developments, which affected social perceptions and was linked to lower rates of crime after people were provided with some details about neighborhood police officers. Pretty interesting stuff, so I hope you enjoy. So Anuj, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast talk today. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so today's conversation is going to revolve around this Nature publication by you and your co-author, whose name is Michael LaForest, I believe. Yeah. Yep, Michael, Michael LaForest. He's a postdoc at Penn State. He's terrific. At Penn State? Okay. Yeah, and the paper is titled Knowledge About Others Reduces one's own sense of anonymity. Yeah, that's a really interesting title. And actually throughout the paper, as I read it, I kept trying not to get caught up in this like recursive reasoning thing going on where you're like, oh, I have to think about what they're thinking about me. Yeah. And so I hope that we don't fall into that trap this time. I hope it's going to be going. But yeah, so I guess the first thing I'd like to talk about is the, I guess even before we get to the paper, I noticed that you are a professor of behavioral science, and that's interesting. So our guests might be wondering, what's a behavioral science professor doing in a psychology podcast? And they may not know the relationship between the two disciplines. So is behavioral science psychology? Like, why do they have different names? How different are they? Yeah, I think of behavioral science as psychology leaning for sure, but maybe more interdisciplinary. So for example, in our group of behavioral scientists, we have social psychologists. I'm a cognitive psychologist by training. We also have behavioral economists. And while we tend to think about questions that are of basic interest to the disciplines that we come from, we're also often interested in how these insights can be applied to issues in the world as well. And so I think we try to straddle both making, making basic and applied contributions would be one way to think about why behavioral science might be slightly different than psychology that helps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that tracks because this paper is, it's almost, you could think of it as a two-part paper with a lab experiment. And then the second part is a field experiment or an experiment in the wild. Exactly. The world. Is this a common thing with behavioral science articles where you do a study and then immediately put your skin in the game and like go in the wild and try to intervene? Or, or does that vary a lot in the field? I'm just curious. I think it varies. I think you can certainly see papers that the authors would think of as a behavioral science paper and to be right to think of it as a behavioral science paper where it's entirely in the field. So for example, Katie Milkman and others have been doing these really large mega studies where they try to test a bunch of different behavioral interventions in different contexts. And that's very much a behavioral science enterprise. It's an inspiring one. 
And it's very much in the wild without necessarily relying heavily on a lab component. But I think there's also lab research that can speak to policy problems as well, even separate from uh, having to do a field study. So I, I think we're, I think you can see all, uh, a variety in the kinds of papers that would be behavioral science papers. Yeah, awesome. Oh yeah, and I, I remember Michael LaForest is a economics and criminology uh, professor or postdoc, you said. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, lots of interdisciplinary collaborations going on, which I think is fantastic. Okay, so for this uh, for the study question, I'd like to at least I guess start by going over the motivation for the question. Yeah. When I read so when I read this paper, I I guess even when I skimmed through it before I read the full thing, uh, my initial face value reaction was, well, this is counterintuitive because the claim is something like, and we'll get into this as we talk. Yeah. If you know more about someone, then you think they know things about you. So I started thinking about celebrities or. Uh, yep. I guess the modern world, we're exposed to so many strangers who, with whom we have this asymmetric relationships, I would say. Like, I know so much about Kanye West, for example, or I know so much about this politician, but I certainly don't expect them to know anything about me. It would almost be ridiculous. But then on the other end, there's this intuition that, yeah, relationships that I have with people are reciprocal or or symmetric even. I know things about someone, they know things about me. If I tell you a secret, then I expect you to tell me a secret. And so there's, yeah, I can see that there would be an expectation for there to be a mutual knowledge of each other. Um, so yeah, I'm curious about like for you, whether you, you're approaching it from this perspective or, or whether you had different motivations for thinking about this question, the way you thought about it. Could you yeah, give me some insight into what motivated you? Yeah. So let me say a little bit about where, where you started and I'll tell you about how this project specifically started. Mm-hmm. You're certainly right that when you're thinking about Kanye West, at some level, you know, we're not friends. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't know me. He certainly doesn't know as much about me as, as I know about him. And there's no way he could. And, you know, the, the literature on people's assumptions of there being symmetry or reciprocity show that, yes, people can come to understand that these asymmetries exist. It's just a bit more effortful. And if you make a snap judgment or our starting point might be to anchor on this notion that there is symmetry or reciprocity. And then you can imagine adjusting away from that, but those adjustments might be insufficient. There aren't strong cues to that asymmetry or um, if you don't have enough time to think about it, for example. And there's also a a large literature on what people call parasocial relationships with celebrities as a starting example, where people actually feel like, because I've seen this person talk about their intimate details of their lives, that, oh, we're, we're kind of friends. And I think that points to this notion that people often see that symmetry. And here we ask the more specific question of, well, does that assumption of symmetry or overlooking these asymmetries affect what you think this person knows about you? Now, the starting point for this project, though, actually wasn't the lab studies, but Rather, the very initial starting point was that we did some qualitative interviews with prior offenders in New York City. Um, These were folks who had been previously incarcerated or otherwise had uh, been involved in the criminal justice system. And, you know, I don't I don't know whether all the questions we asked were the right ones. But one question that we asked was there might have been times when you thought about going forward with an offense, but you didn't. What made you stop? 
Now, you know, that question assumes that there's a lot of intentionality in, in someone's everyday decision-making, so it's, it's not the perfect question. But there were a few folks who mentioned something that gave rise to the, the hypothesis here. And this wasn't the overwhelming response, but it was one that got repeated a few times and which seemed psychologically interesting. So one kid, for example, said, you know, there's an officer in our neighborhood that I know, we, or that we kind of know, we call him Birdman. And whenever we see Birdman around, he said, we say, we've got to chill. We're not going to jump the fair. Uh, we're not going to sell drugs. These are his words. And what was interesting about his statement was that he's basically saying it's not just enough to see another officer. It's far more impactful to know something about that officer. And you know, then we generalize a bit from what he's saying, but he was essentially saying that by knowing more about this officer, I feel like they're more attuned to my actions. And so then knowing what we knew from the social psychology literature, we asked, oh, well, this is not just a hypothesis about why someone might choose to uh, commit something that seems like an offense, but it's, it's a hypothesis that's much more general about what we think others know about us. So that's kind of the starting point for uh, the hypothesis. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. And I guess it helps me think about this. So it feels like one question that could come up is you're trying to explore, oh, sorry, is my audio good? I just got a notification that's like your internet is unstable. Sorry for that. Um, Cut for a second, but I, I can hear you. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so it feels like the direction that we're going is you're seeming to see this trend of like people claim that they have this knowledge of this particular officer and that maybe is affecting their behavior and the question is like what's the mechanism that's going on here and that maybe you might want to do a lab study to explore this mechanism yeah because you know there could be different things going on so could it be that you think that you're friends with the person and so you you would think that it would disappoint them to find out that you did something wrong or the other thing that i also considered is it some sort of surveillance thing where you're like well they could see me or you know because I know them, then they somehow would know my whereabouts and my movements. And I just don't like that. Or that's just going to make me behave myself more. So I was actually thinking in the context of pets, for example, like if your dog is like trying to surreptitiously like steal a steak from the table and they <laughs> miss you, they're going to like, like, oh, you're seeing me. And then they're going to stop doing that. So there's a sense in which knowing that you're being watched is makes you change your behavior. Though I, I don't know whether that's necessarily the mechanism here and i guess that's what's at question what exactly is driving people to somehow change their behavior um when you know that you know something about someone yeah okay i guess maybe to make this more concrete for our listeners and even for me we could go into the the lab study that you designed and it was actually a series of of many different studies sure so you know we have three different lab paradigms in our paper and so the first paradigm really just tries to get at, do people have the subjective sense that when they know more about somebody that this other person might know more about them? And so when we're designing these lab studies, we want to try to deal with, uh, we really want to isolate the effect of having information about your partner. We don't want people to be making inferences based on whether your partner chooses to share that information. Because if someone chooses to disclose something that indicates a comfort with the relationship that might uh, be different than when somebody doesn't choose to disclose something, and that could lead to different inferences. Here, we want to know specifically the effect of having information about somebody else. And so the way that we do this in our lab studies is 
we tell participants, these are all done online on Enter. We tell them they're going to be interacting with somebody else um, and that it's going to be mostly anonymous, but that we'll ask them to answer a few icebreaker questions, just basic facts about themselves. Now, there is deception involved in this in that there is no other person. We're simulating their partner's responses. So in study one, the icebreaker that we use was we just ask participants to answer uh, a few multiple choice demographics questions. So these would be questions, uh, the questions were, you know, what is your marital or family status? What is your employment status? And what kind of area that you live in? And so every participant answers those questions. And then they're assigned to one of two conditions. In the no information condition, they are told that their partner answered those questions, but did not, but were not sharing their responses. And we make it clear it's the experimenter's choice to not share those, your partner's answers. In the information condition, we share with the participants their partner's quote answers. Now, these aren't real answers because there is no partner. These are randomly selected answers to the multiple choice questions. And then we tell our participants in study one, we say, look, we're going to show your partner one of your answers, and your partner is going to try to guess your answers to the other two questions. While they're doing that, the question that we essentially ask is, how much do you feel like your partner knows you? And we ask this in a couple of different ways. So in the very first study, we ask it by having people use this iceberg scale where we say, how visible do you feel your partner? Where if more ice is above the water, that indicates you feel more visible. In other studies, we just ask if you were to meet this person, how well do you feel like they would know you? And we find that in the information condition, participants felt like their partner would know them better or knew them better. And we have other studies where we say, you know, one possibility there, for example, uh, would be maybe this is driven by participants who saw partners whose answers happen to match the participants' answers. So maybe you just feel like they know more about you because they're more similar to you. And so they're, this person's like me, of course, they're going to be able to guess my answers. So we have another study where we manipulate the similarity of the person, and that's, that's not driving the effect. Um, but that first study gives us some idea that, okay, when people know more about somebody else, they have this subjective sense that the other person knows more about them. I'll pause for a second to see if you have questions, and then I'm also happy to jump into some of the other studies. Yeah. So one thing that I thought was interesting was that the questions, I think you explicitly mentioned that they needed to be minimally informative questions or that they, the facts that you're knowing about the partner that you have are, I don't know whether the term is trivial. So it's like their marital status, for example, and not something more intimate. Like, what do you think about intimate relationships? What are your religious convictions? Yeah. And I wonder whether there was a specific intention behind telling someone these things because that's also something that I would think or if I knew about someone then I would expect them to also know facts about me if I knew like intimate details about them so is there a specific reason you chose these like these kinds of questions great question um so you know uh, a few minutes ago you were starting to think of different explanations for why when I know more about somebody they might know more about me or why when I know more about somebody, I might act differently from them. Mm-hmm. And so one possible explanation, for example, could be when I learn something about somebody else, some, if they share something really elaborate or deep about themselves, some of that information could indicate that they're really smart or empathetic or uh, that they are good at taking someone else's perspective. They could 
indicate that this isn't just a stranger that I know something about, but this is somebody who's really good at understanding others. And we didn't want that to be, um, we wanted to know whether the effect was there above and beyond thinking that you're interacting with somebody who's really smart or empathetic. So I think the effect would be stronger if we used more detailed information about people, more intimate details, for example. But we wanted to know, is there an effect just of individuating this person and having some information about them that isn't diagnostic of their capacities? So that was why we used that minimally informative information. But I don't think the effect is limited to that. It just allowed us to be more precise about why we were getting the effect, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I also wonder whether this happens in the reverse direction in the sense that like, if I know stuff about someone and I'm trying to figure out whether they know stuff about me, if I feel like they have some information already about me, then they could deduce other things. Like they could rely on stereotypes, which we rely on a lot. Yep. If they know that like I'm a, I'm a football player or something, then they might infer that I'm like more likely to be a man or like things like that. If, yep. if we're talking about, you know, other kinds of like statistical inferences that yep. someone can make. So yeah, does that, does that also track in this case? Like, is, could that be also why I guess you went with like strangers who know absolutely nothing about each other and you can control the pieces of information that they know about each other? Or yeah, I just wonder whether that component plays in here. I think it does. And, you know, the other reason that we, we went with strangers was because we figured that there is a qualitative difference between knowing nothing about somebody and knowing something about somebody. And so, you know, the effects here, they're modest, but I imagine that they would be perhaps smaller for when you know, already know a lot about somebody else, learning one or two more things might not really move the needle on how much you think about them. So we looked in the place where the we affected, expected there to be a qualitative difference. But I also think this is not just a place to, quote, demonstrate the effect, but I also think it actually matters because we often are interacting with people that just a second ago were strangers or that might still be strangers. We just happen to be on their LinkedIn page or, or whatever. Uh, and so I think it's important to understand those interactions. That makes sense. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so yeah, let's move on to the other experiments that you did, experiment two or three, yeah. Um, so, you know, from, from study one, people are telling us that there's this subjective sense that this person might know me a bit better. And in the next study, we wanted to know whether that translates into thinking this person might be better at actually picking up on some concrete details about you. So in experiment two, uh, we had participants write down four true statements about themselves and one lie about themselves. And uh, we asked them to write down things that were fairly mundane but informative. So the example we gave participants was, I like playing basketball. And then participants, in, again, are assigned to either a no information condition where they see nothing about the partner or an information condition where they, in one of the studies, they see um, all four facts that the person wrote down about themselves. And then we tell participants, okay, we're going to show your five statements to your partner, and they're going to try to guess which of your statements was a lie. How likely do you think it is that your participants or that your partner will guess which of your statements was a lie? And participants in their information condition, now they're answering a slightly more concrete question, thought that it was more likely that their 
partners would know which of their statements was a lie. Um, we have another version of the study where we have two information conditions. So there's three conditions total. Either you get no information about your partner, you get one fact from your partner, or you get four facts from your partner. And we see the same effect there. Now, we don't actually see a difference between getting one fact about your partner or four facts about your partner. So that goes back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, at least in these studies, the effect seems to be really about that qualitative change from going, going from knowing nothing about your partner, knowing something about their partner. It's possible that if, you know, we included richer details about this person's life, that going from one to four would be more meaningful. Like if fact one is I like TV and fact four is about where you grew up and what drives, what drives you in life, then maybe there'd be a bigger difference there. But this study starts to point that, okay, people actually think there's something concrete this other person could pick up on. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll just make a side comment about the, the I guess, the research methodology. I, I like that you have relatively large sample sizes. I was like 400, like almost a thousand, yeah. just like really large numbers. And so you have reason to believe that your effects are pretty robust. And also you do these robustness checks where you like, look at alternative specifications of the um of the study and you find that the results are robust throughout the the different alternative ways and i like that i feel like the commitment to this rigorous methodology is uh is refreshing and i wonder whether that's that's probably like a behavioral science thing because you're going to apply this in the real world so you want your effects to like be relatively robust i don't know whether that's a thing or that's probably just like a one of the science reform things that's been going on lately where everyone's trying to make sure that the results are replicable, which is also pretty right. noble. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think behavioral science can be the only only discipline to claim that. I mean, I think all of the reforms in psychology and other social sciences really have made clear the importance of running replications right. and replications of your own work. And so, yeah, we have three main paradigms in this paper, but we have also direct replications within the paper as well, where we you know, go to larger sample sizes, have better power. And yeah, part of it was for sure you want it, you always want your effects to be reliable, but especially when you're then going to be trying to translate them into a field experiment. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. So did we get to experiment three as well? No. So experiment three then is where we ask, you know, does this actually affect people's behavior? So studies one and two or paradigms one and two are about perceptions. Mm. But does this affect people's behavior? So in the lab experiment, the way this looks is, and it's going to sound a little strange, so let me know which parts aren't clear, but also try to explain some of the reasoning behind the choices we make. So first of all, the information manipulation is as with experiment one. So it's those multiple choice demographics questions, and there's two conditions. Either participants don't see anything about their partner, or they do see uh, their partner's responses. Now, the, the cover story for this that participants read was we told them we are collecting written descriptions from MTurkers about different life experiences that you might have had. So in the study, you're going to be asked whether you've had a certain experience. And if you say yes, then we're going to ask you to write about it. And if you write about it, then you're going to be eligible for a bonus payment. Now, if you say, no, I haven't had that experience, then, okay, the study's over in a minute or less, and you get paid your, I think it was 50 cents for showing up. If you write the description, then you're going to be eligible for a $2.50 payment. So in this study, participants are asked, have you ever had surgery? And you can see that there's a little bit of an incentive to lie, right? Because if I say yes, and I say, oh, you know, I had my wisdom teeth pulled, and oh, man, that, 
kind of hurt afterwards. Now I'm eligible for five times the payment that I was before. So we tell participants, look, if we really need these descriptions, we want you to be honest. And so to facilitate that, we're going to pair you up with a judge. Your judge is an MTurker who has uh, received other qualifications from us. And they're going to flag any responses that they think of as dishonest. And if they flag your response, then you're still going to get paid your basic show-up fee, but you will not be eligible for the bonus payment. So that would have been wasted time of writing down what they thought of as a lie. Now, the reason why we set it up this way, which might seem a little bit strange, is because you, know, you mentioned a little while ago, you said, maybe when I know more about somebody else, I, I'm worried about you know, violating their expectations or, or harming them, for example. We wanted to, if we had given them information about the experimenter, then I would have been worried that they would have felt like, well, if I lie to the experimenter, I'm harming the experimenter. So that's why we tried to have this judge who sits outside of the scheme of who's getting paid and who cares about what to make it clear it's, you're not harming this person at all. Okay, so then we have a few measures. So one is, you know, we ask participants in both conditions, how much do you feel like you know about your partner? And in the information condition, people say they feel like they know their partner better than the no information condition. You can think of that as, almost as a manipulation check. And then we also ask participants that question from a study one, if you were to meet your partner, how much do you feel like they would already know you? And that replicates what we have in experiment one. Participants feel like in the information condition, their partner would know them better. And then the key thing that we're interested in is how often people say that they've had surgery. Now, because of random assignment, those numbers should be the same in the no information and the information condition. So if we say one group in the aggregate saying they've had surgery more often than another group, and that might suggest they're lying to get that extra bonus payment. And we find that in the no information condition, participants are more likely to say that they've had surgery than the information condition. So that might be an indication that people are being more honest or lying less often in the information condition when they have information <laughs> about their partners. And the effect on how much I think this, my partner knows about me mediates the effect of information on whether or not you say that you've had surgery. Um, and one other thing I want to note, because uh, you mentioned the other specifications that we do for our lab studies, is in the final replications that we ran for each of these, I think one thing you could be concerned about is maybe participants in information condition just believe that they're connected to somebody more than the known information condition. So we have these suspicion checks in our, in our final replications of each paradigm. And in studies one, experiments one, or paradigm one and paradigm three, um, you don't see differential suspicion. In the second one, the four truths in a live study, you do see differential suspicion. So that's a weakness of that study, but we can then just limit our analysis to the people who believed um, that they were connected to another participant and the effects hold there. But that, that's imperfect because then you've got selection. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much for those uh, for that summary and for anticipating potential uh, responses to that. So I'd like to at least make sure we have some time for the field study. So sure. I'd like us to get into that first, and then maybe we can come back if we have any outstanding uh, questions. Yeah, so this field study is brilliant. Actually, probably my favorite part of this paper, because <laughs> I, I didn't know that much about community policing, which I don't think it's necessarily a construct here. This is more of like, this is just a concept that we all know generally. So I learned about community policing or like I first encountered this when I was in college. 
during the police reform, I guess this is a thing that's constantly in the national consciousness. But my understanding was, uh, let's see, in society, we have lots of different kinds of problems that police deal with. Like there's criminal problems, civil problems, there's like social domestic problems, mental health problems. And, and generally police, I guess in the United States, uh, the police force is deployed for most or all of these in a hammer and a nail situation where it's like, if the tool you have is a hammer, then everything around you is a nail. And so the one of the explanations for the conflicts that communities have with police is that like someone who's trained to respond to like a violent criminal might use those tactics to respond to like uh, someone in a mental health crisis or mm. in addition to like other challenges like someone who isn't sufficiently trained etc and so community policing seems to be some sort of response to this and i'm not exactly sure how exactly people have specified how community policing should be implemented but i feel like that's my general sense maybe you could go into if you're familiar yeah i i think first of all you articulated a nice set of issues that in the ideal form community policing might help address Mm -hmm. i think community policing initiatives my read is is that they came about because a long time ago, officers often, for example, walked a regular beat and that allowed them to observe what's happening in a neighborhood, but also hopefully ideally understand the concerns of what's happening in a neighborhood. Um, but over time, in a lot of police departments, the model has moved much more towards perhaps sitting in a patrol car and responding to calls for service as they come in, as opposed to trying to gauge the sentiments of the community over time. And so that leads to a detachment from the community. Community policing ideally is meant to make policing more responsive to the concerns of the community and to hopefully foster connections with the community. Now you're right in that community policing is a, it's a, it's a broad term and it's often a bundle of lots of different things. So one common feature is that Officers will spend maybe about a third of their time off of the radio. Someone else will handle the emergency calls, and their goal is to engage in conversations with community members. They also hold community meetings on a somewhat regular basis where they can hear from at least those community members who show up what their concerns are, and also brief community members on what they've been noticing, what the officers have been noticing. Uh, as part of some community policing efforts, there might even be, say, storefronts where officers kind of have a desk where people can come in and there might even be door-to-door canvassing of sorts or door-to-door meetings where officers go around and some work by Dave Rand and others at Yale has shown that when people have those face-to-face meetings with officers, it boosts perceptions of police legitimacy in the community. So it's a catch-all thing and it has been evaluated, like different community policing initiatives have been evaluated but they're always evaluated as these bundles of interventions. And so one piece that we were interested in is, well, what is just the effect of knowing more about your neighborhood officers? Not that we would necessarily make that the only intervention, but what is the effect just of that alone? That makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, thank you. That's a very fantastic uh, explanation. So I'm actually curious of one little detail. So you meant you use the term NCO, which is like neighborhood coordination officers, which is that that an NCO is distinct from a different kind of a police officer, like a sheriff or a deputy, like this is a specific officer who goes into the community and like establishes his relationships. 
could an NCO also be like a sheriff or another kind of officer who's just who just has multiple? Um, yeah, my understanding is that NCOs are all patrol officers, and but instead of just responding to calls for service or driving around the cars, that they are spending this time off radio and engaging with the same community. So in our context, for example, we did our study with public housing developments in New York City. And the NCOs that we worked with are part of NYPD's housing bureau, and they are assigned to work in a small set of housing developments, and that's their beat. So they have a more regular beat, and they're spending time ideally walking around and, and getting to know folks, but they're part of the patrol division or part of the housing bureau, but they're patrol officers. All right. Fantastic. Okay. So yeah, let's get into the actual study. So yeah, you designed some sort of study where you, you manipulate people's knowledge of an officer and, and I guess you do this across different neighborhoods or something and examine certain dependent variables. Would you like to just like yeah. quickly go over that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So we had 69 housing developments that were eligible for this study. Now, there's about 100, over 100,000 people that live in these developments. So in that sense, it's quote a big study. But because of the way the experiment is set up, that we randomize at development level, it's actually kind of a small study. So we should take this as a potential proof of concept. It's not the largest scale evaluation that you might like to have. And we randomly assign developments to either a control condition where we don't change anything about policing practice or to the, the information condition. And the way the information condition looks is we asked officers to choose from a list of about 20 questions, things, questions about themselves that they were comfortable answering and sharing with residents in their community. These questions range from things like, what's your favorite sports team? What are some of your hobbies? The things that were more policing relevant, like how long have you been with the department? Uh, why did you want to become a police officer? So we took three of their answers and turned them into two things. One is an outreach card or a business card where it has their usual contact information. And most of these officers already had business cards, but it also includes those three of those facts on the business card. And then we also created a letter on behalf of the NCOs that explained the Neighborhood Coordination Officer Program, the NCO program, and then elaborates on those three facts for residents. And we mailed those outreach cards and letters to every household in the uh, treatment developments, those receiving the information treatment, three times between uh, November through January, November 2017 to January 2018. And we know that most people aren't going to open their mail, but the hope was that if we send it three times, then maybe more people will open their mail. Uh, and then NCOs in the treatment groups for the treatment developments were also asked to, on one of their patrol days, to hand out those cards as well. And we, we made sure there was only one day that they could do that. We gave them the cards on that day, we collected the cards at the end of that day. Um, and so then we can evaluate this intervention in two ways. One is we can ask residents their perceptions of officers. And so we did a survey with over 1800 residents across these developments. And we asked a range of questions because we weren't sure, you know, we knew the things that were most related to our lab results, but this is an intervention that hasn't really been done. So we weren't we didn't know whether this was going to change loss of perception of officers. So the two key questions we asked are, that were most directly related to our lab studies were, if you did something illegal, 
how likely do you think it is that your neighborhood that your neighborhood officers would know? And then we also asked, how much do you feel like the officers in your neighborhood know you in general? And then we also asked a range of other things like perceptions of uh, how good of a job officers are doing, how much you trust officers, how much you fear officers, and so forth. Those other things don't move. But here's what we see on those questions of how much do you think officers know about you, which is that residents in the treatment developments were more likely to believe that if they knew more, sorry, they're more likely to believe that officers would know if they did something illegal. So knowing more about an officer affected residents' perceptions of how much officers knew about their potential illegal activity. But it did not change residents' perceptions of how much officers knew about them in general. So that's a disconnect from the lab studies. And I think that raises a question of, well, when can people recognize these asymmetries? Now, one explanation we give for this is uh, the role of officer is so clearly circumscribed that maybe there you can say, this person's not going to know everything about me. They're just going to know more about me as it relates to their job description. So that, that's a post hoc explanation. We, we don't know for sure whether that's right. Okay, so those surveys were done about two months after the intervention wrapped, and then we tracked crime uh, for nine months after the intervention wrapped. And we find that uh, about a five to 7% reduction in crime within the first three months, and then that effect fades out um, over time. So, you know, it's a very light touch intervention. Probably most people aren't opening their mail, but it seems to have shifted residents' perceptions and also uh, to have deterred crime in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, I had the same thought about that. And I guess this ties to something we just touched on earlier, because in, in the lab experiments, these are peer strangers who knew nothing about each other yet. In this case, you at least know that it's an officer. So you have, or I guess you're primed to think of certain concepts and maybe you're just more likely to, to think that they would only know things related to your illegal behavior or something because that's the job of an officer and that it wouldn't generalize. So that's interesting. And I guess I have a few just like random, sort of random questions related to this intervention. So one of them is about making sense of the significance of like the results of, of a field experiment. Like, so here you talked about like points one, three standard deviation increase in like people thinking the officer would know that they did something legal or like, or like a certain also standard deviation range in change in crime. And I guess I liked that you also tried to give some context into what that means, like compared to like other kinds of interventions. Could you just mention that really quickly? That could be useful for our listeners. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So one thing we can do is to say, you know, what are some other interventions that would be a useful benchmark for comparing this to? And there's a lot of different proactive policing strategies, one set of which are called hotspot policing strategies. And in hotspot policing strategies, what you do is you... It would saturate an area with officers. There'd be a much stronger police presence in an area where there's typically been higher crime. And there's been a lot of uh, evaluations of hotspot policing, some with randomized control trials. And you see there that you get about a, say, 0.11 standard deviation decrease in crime that stems from that. And at least in the first three months, our intervention compares favorably to that. Now, our effect fades out, and it fades out faster, but fade out is common across lots of proactive policing strategies. But one thing is, you know, if this, if this is the right estimate of how much crime reduction you get, then that would suggest you're getting a similar level of crime reduction 
without the potentially socially costly enforcement that comes from flooding an area with police officers. So, you know, I think this suggests this is an avenue worth exploring further. And it's not the case that this is the only way to deliver this intervention. In fact, I would say this is not necessarily a ready-to-go intervention. I would not say police departments everywhere should be mailing out information about their officers, but rather thinking more carefully about ways to boost this part of community policing that's already there, which is allowing residents to get to know more about officers. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I think it would be good to clarify if we have a sense of this, what exactly we think the mechanism is, because I mean, we've been going over this in the lab study and we've touched at it a few times and I just like this to be clear. So do you think it's that people, so people don't think that because they know this police officer, then they think that they're being surveilled somehow and that they're controlling their behavior. Do you think that that's possibly something that's going on or could it be that this thing that you discovered in the lab, some sort of cognitive bias where you just expect that if you know something about someone, including in this case, a police officer, then that they would just know some things about you and you're in a sense, taking advantage of this cognitive bias to to encourage this intervention of like getting people to have relationships with their officers and, and vice versa and community members. So let me, let me start with the lab studies because yeah. I think the mechanism for the field study, I can explain a little bit about how we try to tease that out, but yeah. you can imagine it being more multiply determined. Mm. In the lab, so in the lab, you know, our perspective is what draws on work by my colleague, Nick Epley, who has to oversimplify it a bit a nice view of how people would take other people's perspectives. So when you're asking somebody, what do you think this other person knows about you? It's a bit of trying to take their perspective. What could this person know about me? And what Nick's work has shown is that people often, I alluded to this earlier, anchor on their own sense and then adjust away from it. But that means that whenever I take someone's perspective, it's going to be more anchored on my sense of, of something. And here what we think people are anchoring on is their familiarity with this other person. So when I'm more familiar with you, I anchor on that and therefore assume that you're going to be more familiar with me. And that's why I think you're going to know more about me, you're going to be better at guessing which of my statements is a lie, and so forth. So to the extent that that might apply in the field, it could be that when I feel that I have more familiarity with officers, that when I try to guess how much they know about me, I'm drawing on my sense that because I'm familiar with them, they're going to be familiar with me. So for example, we see that in the um, we compare treatment developments to their paired control developments, that the developments where you see the biggest change in that question of how much do you think officers would know if you did something illegal, that the developments where you see the biggest change in that are predictive of the largest decreases in crime. So that's is imperfect, but it's some suggestion of the mechanism. And then the other thing we can do is say, well, you know, something that we talked about earlier in the hour is we said, is it just that knowing more about somebody makes me think that they are a better mind reader in general or more empathetic or more paying more attention in general? So there is another question that we asked, which is how much do you think this officer knows about crime in your neighborhood in general? And that doesn't move as much. And it's not as predictive of the crime decreases. So it's not just that I think this person knows more about crime in general. It seems to be focused on what I think they know about me. That, that's somewhat suggestive, I think, of the mechanism. Now, is it just about surveillance? We, you know, we can't fully rule this out because the control condition doesn't have any changes at all. But we could look at other work that has sent newsletters 
to residents. And these evaluations are a lot older, but you know, some 30, 40 years ago, there was a couple of evaluations of police departments that send newsletters to residents, and that didn't move residents' perceptions of crime. And also the effects aren't just limited to the weeks in which residents received the mailers from officers, which is when you might have thought the surveillance of that would be highest. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, helps for sure. Okay, so I just remembered. Uh, all right, yeah, I have to ask you this. Actually, these are two questions that we're asking as final questions to all our guests. And I can see you're reading it. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, it's actually yeah, it's actually quite short. And well, I guess we'll see. I'll read them both of them out, and then we can start going okay. each one. Okay, so the first question: How do you know an idea is worth pursuing? I think yeah, we think the reason the rationale behind this is like as trainees in in psychology it's like it feels it's like where do ideas come from like we're so good at being taught how to like once you have the idea how to test it but the the generation and the selection of ideas is is quite just like opaque to us so i guess you could tell us your personal how do you do it so yeah and this is just my my own perspective but for me as somebody's work kind of at the intersection of psychology and public policy, it's easiest for me to know that an idea is worth pursuing when I know that there is some outcome in the world that it's, that it's linked to. And you know, I started to get this perspective from some other work that we did. I think actually Fiery Cushman on, on your podcast referred to it a, a few weeks ago, where we evaluated some interventions uh, to reduce youth violence. And I, I won't go into the details, but I'll just say I got involved in that project after we already knew that the evalu- that the interventions worked, but we didn't yet know why. And so for me, that made it clear that this was going to be a worthwhile endeavor no matter what, because we know how the story ends. There has to be something to explain it. And psychologists ought to have something to say about uh, why this effect works. And so for me, I think that's when I know an idea is worth pursuing, where it's, we know this has some effect. There has to be some reason and psychology has to have something to say about it. Um, so starting and drawing inspiration from the world, which I think now sounds kind of trite, but that way, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay, second question. What is your advice for young scholars entering psychology? And I guess in this case, you can change that to behavioral science or, yeah. or what field you're in. Um, so maybe there, there's two maybe fun ways to say this, which is to spend more time around people who make you feel wrong. So for me, that means spending time around people from other disciplines where they have a whole set of knowledge that I just don't have. And it forces me to rethink, okay, does psychology, what does psychology add here? Or what should I be drawing from, from other folks? And then the other thing is to spend time on projects, or parts of projects where you can't be wrong, by which I mean uh, spend time just observing and gathering uh, qualitative observations of what's going on before you develop your hypothesis. For me, I guess it's easier to say, here's what some things that I'm noticing, rather than to just introspect and say, hmm, what's something I bet people do? So to spend more time on the parts of the project where you're just looking at what's going on without necessarily first developing a hypothesis. Once you develop a hypothesis, now you can be wrong. But spend more time just observing. Yeah, those are really good answers. Thank you very much, Anuj. 
Uh, so we have three minutes on the clock, which I think is perfect timing on our end. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, I think I'm happy to conclude this. I could let you say any concluding remarks. I feel like we have tied together the ideas at different times throughout the conversation. So I don't think there's things that haven't been said, but if you have any concluding remarks, you can, you can go ahead. Maybe you could just save the general point of the study or like, or maybe a future direction you'd like to take if you'd like. Uh, sure. Um, I don't think there's a, a ton that I want to add. I think the main thing I want to make sure people take away from the field study is that think of this field study more as a test of a psychological hypothesis and not as a ready-to-go intervention, which I mentioned before, because there's a lot more work that still needs to be done to translate this into everyday policing. And it's not necessarily the case that letters are going to be the thing the reform that we need. Yeah. And that's a great point because I feel like psychology or the social sciences in general has this, people have called it generalizability crisis where, you know, you have a certain sample collected in a certain context and you have a certain theory. And I guess your goal is to find something that you hope you hope is generalizable to like all possible contexts. And the push to reform science in part in, in recent years has been about being specific about like how well does the way that you've specified your study and your sample uh, reflect on your findings. And I guess in this case, I would actually think of the field study as a lab study in the sense that you are doing it on the sample population for which the claims should apply and finding the results uh, rather than say if someone just did the lab study and went yeah, this is results that suggest that like in all contexts, this is how humans behave. So we should use this to enact certain policies. And I really like this approach of collaborating with people who have certain expertise and honing in much more specifically on the issue that you're trying to address or the question that you're trying to answer. Yeah, I really did admire that. So thanks, Joseph. Yeah. Okay, so thank you very, very much. This was a fantastic conversation. I really did enjoy. I hope you have a great rest of your day. I hope our listeners enjoyed this. Perfect. Thanks so much, Joseph. I, I really appreciate the conversation and your questions. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. If you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics of the podcast, you can click a link on the survey attached on the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect to us on Twitter at Stanford SciPod. Finally, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or elsewhere so people can find us. Thank you so much, and have a great day.